Welcome to the Minimum Viable Podcast, a project of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people in order to promote a culture of innovation in the U.S. national security community. You can learn more about DEF and get involved at DEF.org. That's D-E-F dot O-R-G. We look forward to your ideas and are excited to connect you with other doers working on hard problems. And we just had a great conversation last week, uh, which we did not record, but... uh, (laughs) That's going to be the only good conversation we have all year. (laughs) Dang. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dang it. Lightning in a bottle. Uh, I should just start recording all my conversations and hire a full-time editor. Uh, and but, a lawyer and a lawyer maybe and a, maybe a lawyer <laughs> if you can record state, all your yeah. conversations yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i am so happy that you took the time to join me today. This is not a, uh, I don't know if I warned you, but this is, this is a very un, unprofessional sort of, sort of affair. This, this you, uh, you got, you got the right guy then unprofessional. I can, do, I can do that. Okay. Yeah. This is not a tight ship. Uh, I'm running here. It is it's a very loose kind of I don't know. We'll see if uh, we'll see if we we end up capturing something valuable. You know, I'm sure that I'm sure that somewhere in there there will be good stuff. Um, uh, but thank you so much for spending the time to troubleshoot with me for the last half hour. <laughs> no worries. And uh, and to to talk to me about your your experience in the design space. So just a quick introduction, uh, if you would, for for the the audience, um, what you uh, who you are and and what your role is in this space maybe this is a good time to also introduce your picture but you that's up to you okay yeah we can we can bring the picture in in a bit i guess um <laughs> the uh so i'm greg galley and i'm one of the co-founders of a company called solve next and um we <laughs> It's kind of an, a little bit elusive in terms of how we describe ourselves, but uh, if if I was going to boil it down, what, where we finally have landed for the moment um, is that we help organizations uh, stand up disciplined systems of innovation, uh, and that really was born out of the work that we did um, in, in conceiving of and developing what probably a next generation of design thinking called Think Wrong, you know, very closely related cousin. So there's lots of overlaps. My background is as a designer. So I was, I, you know, I was trained as a designer. Um, so I learned the basic problem solving methodology that all designers are taught, regardless of if you're an industrial designer or a fashion designer or a, a communication designer, which was my area of focus. Um, we all kind of get the same foundation and we all learn um, this, this problem solving methodology, which has a lot to do with um, sort of looking at the problem from this perspective of the user and understand, trying to be empathetic and trying to, uh, you know, get to a better outcome um, and using making and modeling and, and visual uh, uh, exploration as, a, as part of the problem solving approach. So that, that's my background. Um, 
think wrong is a is a uh, really is slightly more um, I say it's a complementary to design thinking. As I said, there's a there there's some consistencies uh, consistent um, uh, things in that that are the same, and then there's some things that are that are actually quite different. Um, and but it's born out of the practical experience that I have had for you know the many years that I've been doing this work and trying to help my my peers and my clients um, solve problems using design. Uh, techniques using design approaches and and um, we we got to a point I think where that work was was going quite well and our clients for about five years have been saying to us this is great we love it we love think wrong it's really a powerful tool um, they would say it's a powerful tool for ideation a word mm -hmm. I don't particularly care for but um, they you know they they would say this this is great we co we're coming up with ideas that we've never come up with before but our yeah. problem really isn't that that we have a lack of ideas. It's so we don't know how to get our ideas from being a, a hypothesis all the way through to um, a solution that's working and operating in the world. Yeah. And so they told us that for, for for about five years. They kept saying, "So okay, this is great. What's next?" And and we kept saying, "Well, you know, you you, you need to take the idea and make it real." <laughs> and they said, "That's not sufficient. We need help." Yeah. So. So we we spent the last few years really um, working on it from uh, the perspective of solve next uh, of in fact we changed our name our name used to be future <laughs> and we mm -hmm. we changed the name to to solve next because of this question that people are asking of, of what's next it's okay well how are we going to solve yeah. that how are we going to actually do that work and um, and that's where we how we've moved from a problem solving methodology that is very powerful for idea generation to how do you use that problem solving methodology and generate ideas that are disruptive all the way through the development cycle from strategy making to we have a hypothesis about a problem or a pain that exists that we could do something about to we have a solution hypothesis to we're testing assumptions to we're actually building something and learning from doing it for real to we're now handing that thing over to the organization that's going to run and operate it and how do we do that effectively so it's really trying to go all the way through so that that's a long answer to who i am but that's the nature of the business that we're in um we also like to say that we're we are problem and sector agnostic so we don't we don't have we're not deep experts in a particular um industry or sector you know it's not like oh well we only work with the air force because you know we know everything mm -hmm. that there is to know about x y and z um, we're expert in how to get human beings to let go of assumptions and orthodoxies and biases that hold them back how to trick their brains and culture into considering new possibilities and in how to use frameworks to organize both our thinking and our action to get to outcomes and and that's really where we spend our time and our energy um and uh and and, and that gives us the the unique opportunity to explore all sorts of different problem spaces with all sorts of different people yeah uh, and, and you know that's so that's part of one of the things we really like about the work we do yeah, yeah just just one thing that you kind of mentioned about about think wrong uh that that kind of rings especially true to me is that um i think so i started just learning about human-centered design you know mm -hmm. from the national security innovation network i think they were md5 at the time and 
and I saw a huge amount of potential in it, but I didn't exactly understand why I, I like why this potential existed, like why it was functioning. And yeah. It wasn't until I, I think I went to a think wrong three hour introductory course. I think that Mike Byrne was there and yeah, uh, Chris Froakeefe Bowie and Jen Savada. Yeah, yeah, Jen Savada yeah. was the one yeah. who, yeah. who kind of pulled me into that. Um, yeah, and. And uh, and the thing that really struck me about the power of it was that it was rooted in kind of uh, in cognitive science is yeah. that it was at it, at its heart. It was about how human beings have to navigate these things, not just like how organizations or teams have to navigate these things at, like it really. And it's it, you can see it in uh, in the book that I, I think you and Mike and uh, whoever I can't remember who else was John Bielenberg. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, release called Think Wrong. It it really kind of describes why we're like why we're so bad at this. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a really important piece to me, and sure. why? Yeah, it's and some people don't really spend enough time on it. It's we have to really acknowledge our limitations in this space. Uh, both from a cognitive individual level, like why yep. are we bad at thinking divergently? Why yep. are we, you know, why are we bad at incorporating new mindsets or seeing things from different perspectives? And then also the social barriers and, uh, you know, like why are we bad at doing this collectively in a small yep. group? Um, so that was like a huge breakthrough for me and why I was uh, so excited to, to eventually go through the public course uh, which which I would highly recommend for anybody. Uh, it's a it's kind of it's a mainstay. A lot of all of those exercises are are uh, you know we we're constantly pulling and stealing from uh, the stuff we learned for for stuff we run with Agitari. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks. The um, I think you th th there's a distinction there that you make to both both the cognitive science, so what's going on with our brain, as well as you, you alluded to it, which is the social science, which is yeah. how we behave as human beings and interact with each other as groups of people. Um, and so we talk about that biological, uh, you know, issue of the way that our brain works and the synaptic connections getting forged and how that actually traps us into um, sort predictable problem solving approaches as well as predictable answer sets and yeah. and and then culturally how we behave and in, in terms of what we acknowledge as being normal or abnormal and how we react to things that are abnormal I, you know it's a healthy thing i think for a culture to protect itself from something that's a threat mm -hmm. um but it also can be um it can also be quite limiting and it can it can ultimately lead to the demise of the culture if it's not open and receptive to new ideas new approaches new new yeah. ways of doing things and and you know i'm sure that resonates for you both in terms of a human being with a brain but also somebody who works in a very distinct culture right that yes. that has norms that are extraordinary and and, yeah. and i mean that in like extraordinary right they are yeah. they they work really well on behalf of the culture but they also preclude certain things happening, which is also part of why I love the fact that yeah. you chose Agitari as the name for your, yeah. <laughs> for your community, because it's that it's like, I'm gonna, we're going to be a little burr under the saddle of normalcy, right? Yeah. We're going yeah, exactly. to just agitate it and agitate it and agitate it and see yeah. what change can happen. Yeah. So the, the, I mean, and, and a lot of what I have been exploring recently is this idea of, of making a distinction between what is an engineered system and what's an organic system. Mm -hmm. Cause what you're talking about are cultural systems, which are intended to be engineered 
which kind of limits their their uh, their ability to be organic, which is what they should be. You know, like human systems want to be organic. They want yep. to change and evolve and constantly, you know, like iterate and and uh, but we're trying like we impose all of these rules to keep them well formed and 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 kind of. Uh, I don't. I want to say Taylorist in in you know in <laughs> yeah. their yeah. in their approach. We <laughs> right. uh, we tend to bring a factory mindset to what yep. is really not a factory problem. Right. Um, and that's where a lot of our problems come from. Is uh, is yeah. Is, we can blame a lot on Taylor. <laughs> oh yeah. The, the scientific I, yeah. measurement of business processes. It's like yeah. it just persists everywhere because it gives you this uh, this false sense of security that mm -hmm. it, you know if we can measure it, it can be managed. It's like, yeah. you know, not everything can be measured that way. I mean, I can, the, yeah. we, Mike likes to use this example of if I take a kitten and cut it in half, well, <laughs> you know, uh, aside from having a mess, it's it's no longer a kitten. It's, it's yeah. the thing that I've, I've taken it apart. I've dissected it and I can say there's these two halves of a kitten. It's like, yeah, but that's of no use to anybody. Like you can only understand the thing when it's in its whole form and you're experiencing it in that holistic way. Um, yeah. You know, um, the uh, so so well, you know, I'm all for the. Uh, the measurement of certain things. I also think that it it leads us into a, a it leads us into a lot of traps. There, it sets up that, like I said, it's that false comfort that you get from uh, uh, believing that you precisely understand something. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I I do like the distinction of like I'm 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 a big fan of the com the complexity science as relates mm -hmm. to to what we're talking about here, and I I like the distinction between complicated and complex systems being that. A complicated system can be taken apart and understood. All the interactions can be mapped out and then put right back together. And, it, you know, it's the same motorcycle, right? Right. Um, but uh, complex, I've been I've been kind of thinking about it in terms of a motorcycle race. It's mm. it, you've got a bunch of riders on on a racetrack and they're interacting with each other. Um, in, in these very nuanced kinds of ways, you yep. can't take a motorcycle race apart and put it back together. It right. is, it is kind of, there are too many, uh, distinct interactions between all of these agents. Yeah. And I've been trying to come up with ways of describing how then you make decisions in it, This is related to the Kinevin framework, right? I think yep. I talked to you about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, in a motorcycle, you, you look at all the pieces and you're like, oh, I diagnose a problem. And then I just have to get all the pieces back to functioning and then it'll be a functioning motorcycle again. But the way that you make decisions with regards to a motorcycle race are you, you you're a rider in the race and you kind of have to feel the road underneath you. And right. you have to feel how the tires feel as you're taking the turn. And you have to make these subtle, you know, exchanges with the other riders and look at how's the weather right now and right. you know what, like what's what even are the temperature of my tires right now because that affects right. everything there's no simple calculation for you know like uh we could just take it apart and put it right back together again right you've got psychology and physics on top of all of that right so yeah. so i think that's a really nice distinction um the uh it's funny we've been doing some work uh with a with an organization around problem finding and um and and then doing um some uh we call it pain sizer so how do you actually identify the problem 
and then the pains that are associated with that problem. And then you start to size those. And there's some things that we look at basically. One, how many people are experiencing the problem? So that's prevalence, right? So you mm -hmm. size that. And we just do a t-shirt size. Is is you know, is it a medium, yeah. me, you know, large, medium, or small, right? Mm -hmm. Um so we're looking at prevalence. We're, we we look at, we look at severity. How severe is the pain? Like how acutely are mm -hmm. they feeling? Is it medium, you know, small, medium, or large? On that one as well, um, uh, we look at the consequence. So what's the cost of this problem? What and you can measure that cost in a lot of different ways. It could be financial, but it could be psychological. It could be. Um, you know, uh, it could be something intrinsic in terms of the way that it makes somebody feel about themselves, or um, it could be number of lives saved or number mm -hmm. of people, you know, who are not going to be exploited, or there's lots of ways to 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 talk about the, the consequence. Um, and then we actually look at the, we size the complexity. So I really mm -hmm. like that distinction there in terms of complicated versus complexity, uh, complicated versus complex to, um, to you know, it, it, some of these, the bigger the problem, the more people are affected, the more complex it is. The, there's the yeah. sort of the, the, the unknown um, factors that are yeah. influencing the outcomes are really sort of the fascinating space there. Yeah. So there's another, so I'm working on this presentation uh, for the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum gathering, which is happening next month. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to just come up with ways of describing why it's necessary to do these really deep kind of divergent exercises because it's it's meant to be just an introduction to what how yep. and why we play games of discovery um hmm. and i had this i i was i'm kind of building this slow series of exercises which are all around uh you, you got a bunch of animals and you're organizing them into different rooms right <laughs> right i think i introduced this to you yeah um and one thing that occurred to me as I was thinking like, okay, so what if we get, what if we get to this point of complexity where we're like, we have a purpose for why we're, why we're organizing them. Let's say it's a, let's say it's an animal rescue. So now we have a purpose. We can determine which interactions, like which behavioral psychographic right. tendencies in the animals are most important when we know the purpose for what we're designing. And then I was, I was thinking like, what are the other things you might organize for animals? And one of them was, oh, we're going to store live animals for, for slaughter. And, you know, this is like an equal opposite to you got an animal shelter. We want to <laughs> keep them comfortable and safe, right? We right. want to know how the animals are doing, right. what their psychological state is. These are important centers of gravity for us, right? But in, in the animal slaughter scenario, I started to think about it and I'm like, well, you want a lot, you want the quantity and the quality of their meat to be good, right? Um, those are those are considerations. And then I started to think downstream a little bit. <clears throat> I'm designing a storage space for for animals for while they're alive for, to be slaughtered. Uh, wh when is the value created in that scenario? Right. Well, it's created way downstream. It's actually created when people are purchasing meat to eat mm -hmm. it. Mm. And it's not when the an, you know in the animal shelter value is created when you're taking care of the animal because mm -hmm. that's like the user. Right. But when I'm store when I'm storing animals for meat, the value is created by consumers, which means that the psychographic attributes of people buying that meat months later factors in to this problem, sure. which means that uh, and it it's like this added layer of complexity. Um, we you know when you were talking about um. <laughs> the the prevalence and the size and the complexity yeah. of the problem i was thinking well oftentimes we think this problem matters because of how it affects the business and people right. often don't think well how much does this affect um 
the psychological state of your employees yeah. and what's that going to do to how they feel about you. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, thing, it, like yeah. <laughs> Temple Grandin would argue that the psychological state of the animal in the slaughterhouse matters as well. Right? Yeah, well, and, exactly. And, and, and it actually there, you know, it, it's been proven out that the, the productivity of that meat supply chain where you have animals that are um, secure, feel secure yeah. uh, and cared for, um, at, you know, as you line them up for slaughter, it, yeah. it, it actually increases, right? The, fa the fact that you don't have animals that are in, in a state of distress or anxiety yeah. Um, yeah. actually facilitates that. So you can you can add that, that yeah. level <laughs> into it as so well, right? <laughs> this is why I, I brought that up is because what I, what I realized was if you start to think about the psychographic characteristics of the people purchasing right. downstream, yeah. the, I, I know that I, for one, I pay a lot of money for non like cruelty free meat. Right. That's that's something that's a choice that I make. Like mostly I'm like I'm largely vegetarian to, to be honest, but I, you know, if I see that somebody's sourcing their meat cruelty free, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. pay extra for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because that matters to me as a consumer. So our tendency to try and boil things down to this like factory mindset to this what matters right now is within this really limited scope. Right. We don't we we don't think broadly enough, and and a lot of companies really suffer as a result of this. Especially these days, there's uh, more and more people are making their purchasing choices based on how they feel like your your ethical position as a as a corporation, right. or whether they're contributing to the the bad treatment of animals, for example. Um, and uh, one thing that I like about this, no, think more. Think more in terms of complexity. Like think in terms of the larger system. Yeah. Who else is who else is a stakeholder here? Well, yeah. somebody who cares about whether you treated animals uh, with you know kindness or cruelty, they're involved in your decisions about how you know, or they should be involved yeah. in your decisions. Well, I think we can. I mean, we can certainly look at contemporary issues right now, and you could look at the racial justice you know, yeah. uh, issues that we're dealing with in, in Black Lives Matter and the, the idea mm -hmm. of uh, white supremacy and a, and a system that uh, provides extraordinary privilege to one category of person and not others. Um, yeah. And you can sort of say that's, you know, that's, a, that's the outcome of a system that was very <laughs> blinded and not looking, not being empathetic and not thinking about the how everybody in society was experiencing this and not yeah. equally valuing everybody in society. So we, you know, we, you, you're right. You can just see this play out time and time again. Um, yeah. I think this is one of the, you know, so one of the distinctions that we make in terms of talking about user-centered user design and, and, and design thinking, which is really rooted in this idea of being user-centered design um, and, and think wrong is, and this is why I talk about them as being cousins is, um, we do, we we tend to look not just at the user, but we tend to look at the players in the ecosystem. So if you think mm -hmm. about who's who all is in this problem space, if you think about that as a as a um, a painscape, <laughs> a landscape of pain, uh, you know that in the in this in this space there are lots of different parties. They 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 are interconnected. They have different relationships, um, and. Some people are passing pain on, okay, I'm going to get rid of my pain by giving it to somebody else. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some people are working to, you know, lower the, lower the uh, pain altogether. Um, yeah. But you want to start to look at the, the incentives and motives for everybody who's connected in this problem space. Yeah. And, 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 
and you want to look at the problem from those different different perspectives. We're working with an organization right now, and it's really amazing how challenging that is for them not to just look at the problem from their perspective, but mm -hmm. to say, let's look at it not just from your perspective and not just from the buyer's perspective, but let's look at it from the four or five other parties who are crucial to the yeah. to the ultimate creation of de delivery of your services or delivery of your goods and the creation of value however we're going to define that let's like yeah. look at it from that and let's start to understand the what are the gives and gets what are the things that that you know each person is expected to give and what they will get from doing that and what what does yeah. that look like you know uh, we end up doing these these um uh, it, it, you know, a matrix, it's like one of those mileage things where you say, what's the distance between, you know, in the old maps, I, I don't know, you're too young for, you, there used to be something <laughs> called the Thomas Guide. <laughs> it came in a, it was comb bound. It was a, it was a, a book full of maps, right? Yeah, and it would, absolutely. it would help you like navigate around the place like, like Los Angeles. And you could look in there and you could see, oh, you know, how far is it from Barstow to, you know, to Palm yeah. Springs? And then you could say, oh, how far is it from Barstow to San Diego? How far? Is, yeah. So, so we actually have these intersecting gives and gets for all the parties on, on the x-axis and the y-axis. And you're looking mm. at, and so it would start with you. You'd be up yeah. in the upper right-hand corner and say, what is Daniel giving to Daniel? Yeah. And what is Daniel getting from Daniel, yeah. right? And then it would say, what is Daniel giving to Greg? And what is Greg you know, giving yeah. to Daniel? And what are we getting from each other? And so yeah. you start to look at those these these complex intersections. Uh, and, and the gives and gets isn't just functional. It's not just what transactionally what are we getting like oh you give me some money and i give you some knowledge or a tool right it's yeah. emotionally what am i getting from you and what are you getting from me it's and, and then from a self-image standpoint what is the fact that i have a relationship with you say about me and yeah. what does it say about you and what does it say what does it signal to other people mm -hmm. right? this yeah. is always an interesting thing about the the, the think wrong intensive where we have this mix the, the it's but especially the public classes where we have a mix of uh of military and civilian mm -hmm. and you know because there are these perceptions that people have of people in the military and there's a perception yeah. that people in the military have of folks who are civilians right yeah and and suddenly it's like oh wait a minute <laughs> i i get this this self-image disbenefit that I would, thought I would have associating with this person, and actually turns out that there's a real benefit to me because there's yeah. this there's this human being that's got all of these experiences, and we have a lot of overlap that's quite similar, but then they've got some really unique experiences that are really beneficial to me, right? There's uh, there's yeah. some some mindsets and attitudes and experiences and knowledge that they're bringing that are really um, I'm missing out on by not having yeah. a relationship with this person. So yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, that's that's brilliant. And I was just thinking I need to use that uh, for a project I'm working on right now because uh, a friend and I are trying to we're working on a written uh, piece. Uh, we're co-writing something about the phenomenon of the, the frozen middle. Right. Which yep. is a which is something that happens in in every organization, because there are these people who are like, well, I'm trying to affect change. Uh, in this place, you know, beneath, like below me and somebody below me is getting in my way. So there's this frustration from the top. And then right. there's people from the bottom who are like, <laughs> that guy said I could do this, but somebody below him said I couldn't do this. Right. And, and there's this frustration from them as well. And what I, what uh, a friend kind of pointed out that I thought was brilliant and made me say, we have to write a piece on this was who's, who's, who has really explored 
the experience that those people in the middle are having and mm. why they're motivated to mm. behave the way that they are mm. because they're not just like they're not just terrible people generally <laughs> speaking that assumption is yeah. wrong like yep. that somebody's just bad yep. um but that is a uh, i don't know if you've read uh, the Phoenix project, um, about, you know, about it's, it's a novel about DevOps. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it's a lot of fun, but one of the things that I liked about it is this, there's this character in it who is the, he's the compliance guy. Like he's, he's worried about being compliant with security and, yep. and, uh, not, you know, like not releasing PII to the public and stuff like that. And everybody views him as the enemy right. and they all treat him like the enemy. And right. he has this rough emotional, arc through the through the the story where he you know at a certain point in the story it seems like he's like about to kill himself mm. and the interactions with all the characters in him and i thought that was really interesting and empathetic yep. to be like no that's a that's a person with yep. feelings and reasons for the way that they're behaving why don't we think about our relationship with them what what we're giving to them are we giving them a reason to work right. with us right are we bringing them along with yep. us uh, those are the main questions that that book asks, but it's uh, yeah. kind of what you just described reminds me a lot of that. Uh, that that, that character is, you know, in the roles that we talk about, that's the sheriff, right? So we talk about yeah. the sheriff and the sheriff's got yeah, a set of laws. I'm here to to enforce the laws. Um, the 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 outlaws don't like sheriffs and they actually think yeah. that sheriffs are conspiring against them. And the problem there is just that there aren't is that they is that the organization hasn't developed the right set of laws. <laughs> for the outlaws, right? To say the the kind of work that you're doing, this disruptive work that's inventing the future, actually should be governed by a different set of laws yeah. than the part of the organization that's that's running our as-is state, our current state, right? That yeah. that needs to be regulated in a different way because it shouldn't be experimental. It shouldn't be um, it shouldn't be disruptive. It shouldn't be full of risk. It, it, you know, we, we we need the predictability here. But in this other part uh, that's inventing the next thing that will at some point get to a stable state and be predictable, we need to be we need to be open to trying to new things. We need to be open to experimenting. If the if the sheriff, if the compliance person knew, hey, there's there's a set of laws that for this kind of work, the predictable path work that we talk about, we're going to yeah. govern it this way. And for this bold path stuff that's inventing what's next, we're going to govern it this way. They'd be happy. So there's that aspect, and then there's the other thing of, of simply changing the question from, which is the problem that most people, uh, the trap they fall into when they when they talk to folks, regulators, and compliance people, lawyers, mm -hmm. is, um, can I do this? Well, the answer to the, that question is always no. Yeah. Because their job is to say no, right? Mm -hmm. And this goes for managers as well. If you just look at the sort of middle that middle layer, if you think about executives or officers or leaders and managers, I don't know the vernacular exactly to say what rank would be the manager class. Um, and then the practitioners, right? The grunts, people doing that, yeah. <laughs> doing all the hard work, um, you know, that managers are seen as, as always saying, no, well, their job is to protect the organization from risk, right? Their job yeah. is to, in fact, minimize variance. Um, mm -hmm. And if, if instead of saying, can I do this? You said, how might I do this? yeah right yeah then suddenly you've invited them to be a strategic partner and yeah. said there's this problem that needs to be solved how might let's ignore whether we it's permissible or not right now if we mm -hmm. if it were how might we actually do it how might we, and then you suddenly invited them you could invite the lawyer or the compliance person or the regular or the man, regulator or the manager to say 
oh, interesting. So, yeah, if we were going to do it, I'm not saying we're gonna, yeah. but if we were going to do it, <laughs> how might we actually do that? Um, yeah. And you've just invited them to generate some new possibilities with you and to be this partner in solving mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, showing up and asking them to do their job, which is, okay, I understand you're the cop, right? Yeah. Can I do this illegal thing? No. Okay. Well, yeah. I guess I got to go talk to my congressperson to change the law. Yeah. <laughs> so I can yeah, do no, this. <laughs> this is, yeah. And that's exactly, um, I've kind of, I've, I've had issues with this, this, with the Air Force model of innovation for a while, where it seems like there are these places where there's no rules and then there's where the rest of us live. Right. <laughs> It's, yeah. and, and that's really frustrating for people who are driven to innovate their world that they occupy. I'm going to mute. The, the UPS man just showed up, so I'll oh, mute nice. on my side. <laughs> yeah, and, and so as somebody who, who occupied that space and, and, and who was not like given that elevated status or wasn't given those special permissions or didn't have a strategic champion who was sheltering me for a majority of my career, um, I, I felt a great deal of frustration and it made me just want to, want to leave like, oh, you don't welcome my way of thinking in this environment and you don't want to change things at the lowest level. You just want to, you just want to run labs where your top priorities get innovated on. And that was really frustrating for me. And I kind of, you know, I agitated on that subject for, right. for a number of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so now I'm, I'm, you know, my primary purpose is how do we make that, uh, that kind of you sounds like you're what you're referring to is sounds familiar from the uh, Safi Bacall's loon shots. He talks about dynamic equilibrium, mm. and I, I personally, I I think that you would view it a little differently than than Bacall put it um, because what what he was describing, I, I think he was trying to make his his view differentiated a little bit from the culture first folks because he talked about structure first and right. he was like culture is the derived from structure and that really hurt my brain a little bit because i'm like <laughs> you're talking about you're trying to you're trying to reduce the idea of culture to a complicated system and culture is not a complicated system it's a complex system yeah which means you can't just set conditions and culture will be great no, no, that's you're absolutely right because because of that complexity, the culture is 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 the uh, you know intersection and manifestation and experience of so many things, right? Yeah. That are that are whether it's you know inherited belief systems, whether it's the tool sets we use, or the language, or the geographic place that we find ourselves in, or the foods that we eat or the songs yeah. that we sing or the you know there's so many pieces to that that yeah that sort of, sort of just stripping it down to what's the what are the structural you know yeah uh, and he wanted to say it was all about incentive structures he said you know there's like the political motivations uh and those are you know if you make it if you make it more important for people, you know, if, if you reward people politically for uh, for maintaining the status quo, then that's what your culture will be, which I, I generally agree with. But I think mm -hmm. that he, he put it in, in kind of overly simplistic terms for, for me at what I saw people taking away. from. Yeah, that. I think that I think that incentives are have, have a, a, a really, you know, influential role. Yeah. In in what culture emerges? I mean, we have a um, we have a client who is um, 
what they get paid for is a mo a transaction that happens at a moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, they it, that has to do with standardized testing. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, you take the test, they get a ch you know, they get a payment. Um, yeah. And and so they're really curious. You know, they really monitor how many people take the test and how much are they making. Um, mm -hmm. They talk about a desire for to to actually influence outcomes. They they want to have people be based on the on the study to be more ready for something in their yeah. you know, to and it, whether it's the um, to get to an advanced advanced higher level of education or to be career ready. Yeah. But they don't measure how people are doing in terms of are they actually getting to higher levels of study or are they career ready yeah. right <laughs> and there's a really easy way to measure if somebody's career ready are they getting hired right yeah so so if you wanted to if if that was truly um what was driving you you would you would measure that mm -hmm. and you would see that the that the behavior of the organization the things it prioritizes would shift to what are the things they're going to actually get more people career ready and employed, employed in a job where they're highly valued and they're doing what they want to do, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to at this moment in time, they took this test. Yeah. And 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 so so that will it'll have a real influence in the culture, but that alone yeah. isn't sufficient, right? That alone will you <laughs> you can't you could not look at that and say, okay, we well, can tell you what the culture is now of yeah. the organization. Because yeah, exactly. you know, the, yeah. the leader of the organization has an influ a huge influence. The, the the city that they're located in has a huge influence. The 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 seven thousand members of the organization have yeah. you know that actually fund it have a huge influence. Cultural broader cultural attitudes about education and and job and employment. Uh, yeah, you know, all of those things factor in. So, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that we, this comes back to and, 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 and you've alluded to it a couple of times. And I think part of what, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Very persistent UPS man, Tr triggering my dog. Very driven. Uh, it's like, okay, um, sorry about that. So what what I was what I was saying is one of the things that <laughs> I don't think that it, I think this is embodied in Think Wrong, but I don't think it's I don't think it's it's unique to Think Wrong, but it, it's it's probably just part of what we've always tried to do, which is. <laughs> At the end of the day, let's net this out to, okay, you're a human being and I'm a human being. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. and let's 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 acknowledge that about each other. Let's connect with what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, and and let's um, not lose sight of that. So when. <clears throat> It's easy, in, in, and you know, my as a designer, I spent a number of years doing user interface design and very immersed in 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 human centered design from a computer system standpoint. Um, but even that's insufficient because it doesn't take into consideration it, it historically had not taken into consideration the emotional context of what people mm -hmm. were experiencing. It was very yeah. rapid. 
you know, kind of engineered thing, right? Yeah. Um, it didn't take into uh, into consideration this this idea of what I talk about as self self image benefit, what it means to be part of a community, what it means to be a, in a peer set, um, yeah. and how that changes things. And so, so like, what it, what does it mean for me to be a human being engaging with you? What does it mean for us to be sharing in this conversation for be share, to be sharing ideas. What does it mean uh, at, at the end of the day? Um, you know how 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 are how are these frameworks and how are these tools and how is this language and how are these techniques of value to you mm-hmm. in in the existence <laughs> that you're trying to create for yourself and others, right? And the yeah. difference that you're trying to make in the world. And so that's a that's probably a little bit of my you know being born in Berkeley and growing up in California kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, the, and growing up in the middle of the Redwoods, like you did, uh, yeah. you know, this sort of hippie vibe still yep. <laughs> right? yep. in there, which is, um, you know, we, we, we can't lose sight of that and, and user centered. I'd rather be user connected, right. Yeah. I'd rather be human connected, people connected and sort of understand no matter how complex the problem, no matter how much the pain that we're all experiencing, the, the things like that in different ways, mm-hmm. and it, you know, trying to trying to um, stay um, cognizant of that in the work that we do. So there's that. So there's that piece that sort of goes through the work as well. That that's yeah. in, in, in you know the approach that we try to take. It's why we use the like kind of language we use. You know, we try to use. Yeah. Some of it's, you know, we're, di- we're trying to have a little bit of fun. We're trying to be human. We're trying to be accessible. Some of it yeah. gets a little opaque because of that, but it's like, that's all right. You know, we can have a conversation. I can explain what it is. Um, yeah. It's why I don't use name tags. When we used to show up, be able to show up at, in person in rooms, it was like, mm-hmm. we don't put name tags on. Well, why? Because I actually wanted to learn your name, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I, and, I yeah. want, and I want to be able to say to you, I, I really like what we're talking about. I can't remember your name. Can you just yeah. tell me your name again? And it's like, it's okay to do that. It's like a little thing, yeah. but it's just like, let's connect as people yeah. in that way. <laughs> so there's there's something you're referring to, which is really like uh, resonates strongly with something that came up today for me where I was, we were meeting with our Agitaria leadership team. We've been having these weekly sync meetings where we talk about where we're at with the different lines of effort, whether we're still aligned to our original purpose. Yep. And we have this conversation. It's a very small team of dedicated people who are doing this for for no pay. So it's always a lot of fun. And, um, you know, so and, and one thing that came up was this idea of uh, an onboarding system. Mm. And I thought he was talking about an onboarding system for like the leadership team. And I was and I immediately was like, I don't want anybody to interact with just a system in order to in order to join us right because that comes at a price uh when when you try and it's and it's the it's this theory again of treating a complex system like a complicated one you overly apply constraints right you are like here is a form that i want you to fill out with all of these data points and those are going to inform how you onboard to the community and and my instinct was uh this is supposed to be a community which means that it's human based it is entirely about the experience of humans ha- you know that humans are having with one another we are all motorcycles on the road kind of feeling where we're at with each other and we're interacting in that way we're not interacting as though we were you know like here's here's your specific lane that you have to be in and you have to right. navigate it very 
very uh, accurately. Um, and and what it, it occurred to me that at least with with the small community, a majority of the experiences I want people to have as they join us, I want them to be human experiences. I yeah. want them to be conversations, yeah. which is it sounds a lot like what you're referring to, which is like, what are your touch points for this, right? And in, in design terms, yeah. and how many of them are human touch points that can be adapted, that can see how you're doing with the experience, that yeah. can that can just kind of meet you where you're at in the moment you're interacting with them. Yeah. Because a majority of systems that you set up in advance of that um, won't be able to adapt in that same way if you if you pre-built it to, you know, to to rigorously yeah 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 you know it reminds me we do some of these flow drills that are about uh you know you, you, people think of them as icebreakers but they're not icebreakers they're actually that moment of human connection that before we get started let's actually connect as human beings on this thing so that i'm going to introduce myself with my first name i'm not going to yeah. tell you my title i'm not going to tell you my rank i'm not going to tell you my linkedin bio i'm just going to say you know first name and secret talent or a first name yeah. and you know, strangest job or first name. And, you know, so I'm telling you something about myself that allows us to connect in, as, as people who, you know, we yeah. have, as, as human beings, a lot of our life journeys are similar. I mean, we're born, we go to school, we, you know, we, we go on to some form of work. We, you know, either, you know, have relationships or not, we have kids or not. We go, we, we grow, we take care of our parents, we grow old, we die, right? There's this, yeah. you know, we've got, there's a lot of overlap in our, in yeah, our, sure. in our life journeys. <laughs> so there are all these moments where, that, where, where we actually have opportunities to relate and to connect. Um, and th those are, those, those sort of finding those places of, of, um, oh yeah, you know, I did a weird thing or I've got a, I didn't know that about you or yeah. you know, even the, what kind of tool are you is this sort of, how do people perceive the, the value that they bring that they, you know, when they show up, how do they think about themselves? How do they think the value uh, is a, yeah. uh, think of themselves in terms of the value they create in the room? The, these are things that are, um, I think really useful to, to know about each other and to, to sort of start from that place. So yeah. before we get going, um, Stephen Burke, who is one of the founders of a, a, a company in the UK called Leap that does, it's interesting. It's sort of, it's a, it's a mix, sort of like what John McCaskill is doing. It's this mix of, um, of, of leadership development and mindfulness. Right. Yeah. And, and, he has a, a really simple drill, which we use all the time, and it, it works really well in the virtual. Even if you have, you know, forty people on your screen, it's just mm -hmm. like one word that just tell that share us, share with us one word that talk that that describes how you're feeling right now. Yeah. Like before we get started, and just like people to go through, I'm excited, I'm tired, I'm agitated. You know, mm -hmm. it's like then something. Oh, we're all feeling these things <laughs> right mm -hmm. now, right before we get going, and we and we need to be mindful of that. My wife teaches second grade. She does the same thing with her second yeah. grade. It's like, we just, it's like, oh, it's okay to do with second graders, but adults don't do that kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, adults should maybe do a little bit more of that kind of thing. Maybe we'd actually be a little bit more compassionate with each other. Yeah, we did. yeah absolutely. And that idea of, so that that's a, uh, we did that during summer of design. I just recently yeah. went through the Darden's uh, summer of design. And for, uh, that was a lot of times the, the kind of introductory thing is how, how are you feeling right now? You know, there's some yeah. self-reflection and those reflective pra practices, especially like, um, you know, 
it, it, it scales out to who are we right now? Like yeah. there's who am I right now? Cause I'm, I'm always somebody different, right? I'm like, right. <laughs> I am angry, hungry, you know, right. upset Daniel. I am excited, nervous Daniel. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. always kind of flowing between these states. Yeah. Um, and part, one thing that, w- one thing that they did at, at the, um, in the Darden program that the, one of the facilitators did that I really appreciated was he asked everybody to draw. Have you ever done draw a, a, a spiral? He says, mm. for, for one minute, I want you to draw as tight a spiral as possible on a piece of paper. And I was like, oh, this is a weird exercise. I'm like by myself. I was in my car at the time, <laughs> I'm sitting in my car, I'm drawing this spiral. And I realized like, you know, like 30 seconds into this, that I was going into kind of this, this very clear headed meditative state, mm. just because the the physical practice of drawing a, a tight spiral and focusing only on that nice. tiny movement. Yeah. And, and you're just like breathing and drawing a spiral. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this weird trick. Right. Uh, and then <laughs> I had a lot to say about how I am right now, because I had cleared yeah. my head of all this mm. other stuff. Oh, that's nice. Um, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a really cool exercise. I, I like I have, that. Uh, intended to use uh, in, yeah. in the future. I will. I will take that one as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Mike Mike has coined this term. It's really interesting. Um, you know, in in some of the work uh, that we're doing, what we want to do is um, say, all right, we have an idea. We have we have a we have a solution that we're working on. What are the biggest or most critical assumptions that 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 actually, if we're wrong about the assumption, we're it's you know it's yeah it's not gonna it's not gonna work. So first of all, getting people to be able to make a distinction between a presumption, something that we're gonna presume to be true, and we're not gonna test it. Yeah, like AWS will be here next year. Yeah, right? a year ago, we, we it would have been safe for us to presume that you and I could get on a plane at any time and go anywhere yeah. we wanted to. Right. <laughs> so there's a but so that's an example of a presumption where things change dramatically and, and are no longer true. But presumption yeah. something we're going to just grant is true. We're not going to test it. And assumption, this is a we we believe this to be true, but we don't know for sure. We don't actually have the data to prove it. We haven't gathered yeah. our own data, so we can't prove it. And then knowledge. And so we sort of we've been looking at these things that, that is we know this thing to be true, right? About yeah. this. And and um the more we looked at it, it's sort of like it's interesting because what what we can say we know to be true actually changes, and mm-hmm. so Mike started talking about true for now, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's true for we're we're willing to say this is this we know this it, we're going to say it's true for now, yeah. And as you were describing the different Daniels, it was like each yeah. one of those is true <laughs> for now, right? So yeah. the hungry Daniel is true for now. That's who you are yeah. right now. The curious <laughs> Daniel is the is the Daniel. The the, the socially you know reticent yeah. Daniel is another Dan. They're all true for now. Yeah, but they can change, and and Absolutely. so that so this sort of being able to hold some of these things loosely, even what we what we presume to be knowledge, uh, yeah. is really important in the work. Um, another nice exercise. Think your spiral made me think about it that. Uh, that Stephen introduced to us, Stephen Burke introduced to us. We bring him in sometimes to the think wrong sprints or, or blitzes. And we, we kind of sneak in some mindfulness or sneak yeah. in some leadership development, some team sort of stuff uh, within the context of whatever the problem is. It's sort of like, well, sometimes you know it's an organization. As much as we need to work on the problem, we actually need to work on the team. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so and much. so yeah. so Stephen's really good to bring into that. Like a John McCaskill would be a great guy to bring into that kind of a situation where you might have a John Hawley expert facilitator and a John McCaskill yeah. is going to like crack your head open and make you do something <laughs> right, meaningful. Um, and and the so Stephen does this um, drill called perspectives. And so um, what you do if you can do it in a room. We haven't created the virtual version, but we should be able to. You create this sort of sundial, you know, d d create um, eight segments, uh, you know, just a, a line intersected by another and then divided again. So you've got these eight segments taped, taped out. We use painter's tape. And at the center of that, <clears throat> you put the, the topic, the thing that you're working on. So yeah. let's just say, um, you know, uh, AI for weapon systems. We're going to put that in the center. Right. So yeah. that's the topic. And then each of these segments there, it's a it's a point of view. Hmm. It's a perspective on AI for weapon systems. And you usually you would sort of have some conversations and you would figure out what those points of view are before you run the drill. And you mm -hmm. just on an eight and a half by eleven, you 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 put all the different points of view down. So the, and then you leave one that's open. So it could be a new point of view. Yeah. And you get the you get the group to walk around the circle. And just yeah, like, nice. yeah. and, and so you're walking around, you're looking at the thing in the middle and you're looking at each of these perspectives and you're just circling. Yeah. And he, and he actually has, it's like your spiral. So you're doing that a few yeah. times. So you get into this state <laughs> physically, what you're doing is you're getting into a meditative state where I'm open and receptive. I'm looking at these different points of view. And he, so he says first, okay, now you've cycled around, go stand in the wedge that represents your point of view best. And so you yeah. see, so you see this distribution of the group and, hmm. and what you see oh, is yeah. not everybody's in the same wedge. Interesting. Yeah. So talk among yourselves as to why you went into that wedge. So they have that conversation. Okay, great. Now step back out, cycle around again. Now stop at the, at the point of view that if, if not for your first point of view, this would be your point of view. So what's yeah. your sort of second position? So they do that. Now have the conversation as to why have that and you can do some polling you can ask people you know why are you in that wedge and they can share it with the group yeah so people are hearing that now cycle around again and stand at the wedge that is diametrically opposed to your point of view that you actually yeah. don't believe and you don't support right the one that you are strong most strongly against yeah and so now you're standing at that well by this time in generally you will see that other people had at one time occupied that wedge that you're now occupying, right? Yeah. And yeah. and so you have um, you have you know why did you have the conversation about why did you occupy occupy that wedge? Okay, so we have that. Now to speak among talk among yourselves as to um, what is it that's true about that wedge that you're standing in. So nice. yeah. what it does is get people to acknowledge that even though I don't agree <laughs> with it, there's something true about it yeah right and so this whole exercise is about saying look there's for any challenge there's lots of different perspectives and yeah. there's reasons why those perspectives exist and there's something true about every single one of them yeah okay and, and so we to get out of this right or wrong yeah yeah <laughs> but, exactly you know, <laughs> yeah oh that so, I, i'm just i'm <laughs> i'm finally reading dave gray's book liminal thinking right mm, now yeah uh which is like very much along those lines of thinking right it's yep. like uh, you know all of our 
all of our beliefs are just beliefs. All of our assumptions right. about the world are just, that's just what we think right now. That right. from our, like, <laughs> I, I love how he describes the amount of, that our, in, our brains actually process of yeah. even, even, you know, never mind the fact that we haven't had an opportunity to see everything from every angle. Even the information that has been in front of us, we only know or have experienced a tiny fraction of the information that our eyes and our ears kind of took in. Oh, yeah. We processed a minute fraction of that. And how did we process it? We put it through all these filters to translate it yeah. into something that makes sense from our worldview. We right. didn't like, we didn't look at it objectively. We were and then we, like, then we created yeah. a PowerPoint deck <laughs> just, just to yeah. make sure it was as low oh, yeah. resolution as it yeah, could exactly. possibly be. <laughs> we, we made sure that it what, it matched the co the color scheme of our existing worldview right. and, and it was the right it was in the right font. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like. And we had a tiny, like, little box that was in a specific shape, so it had to fit that shape. Right. And that is what we experienced, uh, yeah. and that's what we remember. Um, right. And that is just not enough to capture yeah. all the information we need uh, yeah. to, to make informed choices, especially informed choices for other people <laughs> who are not us. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, you know, like normally we, normally I ask people to, to share their, to share their, their pictures, <laughs> at least in the first half of the conversation. Okay. So, <laughs> but so let's start the conversation now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're still setting precedent. I'm not, I haven't done too many let, of these. So, so let, let, that's, re, that's reminding me of thinking wrong. So let's go back to thinking wrong for a second, which is, yeah. um, when we when we talked about the way that the brain works, when we talked about the neuroscience and then that sort of social science, uh, the way that uh, that um, cultural norms and the way that uh, that that tribes behave and groups of people behave, mm -hmm. um, the, those those are actually you know we've evolved to work that way. So that's you know that that is actually thinking right, right? It's yeah. not it's not meant as a pejorative. Those are those are that's when we're uh, you know we're thinking right. Quite wonderful that our brains work the way that they do. If we had to relearn, yeah. you know, sort of the things every single day because the synaptic connections weren't holding, yeah, that would that would be, you know, it would it would be horrible. It'd be that Groundhog Day movie, right? In extreme. Um, and if our cultures weren't capable of 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 perpetuating themselves and protecting themselves, and and you know, then we um, <clears throat> we would lose a sense of identity and place and purpose. Um, yeah. So, so it's great that our, that we work that way. That's the thinking right has its benefits, but it has its limitations. It inhibits, especially when we're trying to create the what's next. When we're trying to create what's new, um, it inhibits us from doing that. So, thinking wrong is actually about tricking both our brains and culture into mm -hmm. uh, into entertaining new possibilities. Uh, yeah. and, and, and into exploring new possibilities and discovering what might actually work. Um, that is outside of the normal. It, it is it is embracing that abnormal and, and, and being willing to um, explore that. Um, so with that, we have done the abnormal for for your podcasts, which is yes, we we of didn't look, I... we we didn't look at the drawing at the beginning. No, we didn't, and I'm and I'm okay with that uh, because we we really we explored a lot of uh, amazing topics so far. 
Um, and I think that a lot of people are going to get just a huge amount out of what we've already covered. I am eager uh, to see uh, what you what you drew. You gave me, I think, a quick sneak preview yeah. uh, last time. Um, but this is just to, to introduce as you pull that up. Um, this is I asked Greg to um, to share a visual representation of his uh, his relationship or interaction with or perspective on uh, the the field of design and facilitation and it can be biographical or it can be just like a, a systems map or, or whatever mm -hmm. he wanted it to be and this comes from you know my my uh, exploration of the use of visual thinking as a as like a starting point and a way for us to to kind of create abstraction uh, that allows us to to go more deeply into the specifics uh, of of what you know various things so do you do you have your yeah yeah i have it up so let me let me uh share my screen here and let's see if it's going to allow me to choose All right, so you're seeing, it should be, it says you're presenting yep. your screen. Okay. I can see it. Okay, so um, so I was influenced by uh, the the sort of photo montage out of your, <laughs> the podcast <laughs> that, yeah. that, that I, that I watched. Karen holds. Uh, exactly, yeah. Karen's, yeah. And so I, so I think I went down the autobiographical uh, route with this, um, just because yeah. I thought that was kind of an interesting way to talk about the evolution of um you know how did i end up here uh and what are what are what are some things and it's sort of i sort of looked at early early development so this this first um and we'll see how i can navigate this drawing um i'm zoomed in on it a little bit here but um when i was a kid i would i, I always liked to draw and and i um the earliest form of drawing purple was my favorite color as a kid so i, I managed to get a lot of purple pens um and I like to, I would sit, I think this was a meditation. So your spiral in the car yeah. again evoked that. <laughs> like I would sit with a piece of paper and I would draw these little loopy spirals and they would kind of connect to each other. It was now, you know, I was born in 1963. So mm. Paisley was a big, you know, influence in the, in my sixties, early childhood. I had Paisley yeah. shirts, right? So I might've been influenced by the, by Jimi Hendrix and, you know, and purple yeah. and, and Paisley. Um, but I, so I, I would fill sheets of paper with these doodles and then I would go beyond paper and start to doodle on, you know, walls and furniture and things like that, which did yeah. not, did not endear me to my parents <laughs> because I was doing it with permanent pens. Yeah, um, so, so, um, <laughs> but I always, I, I always drew, uh, as, as a kid and, um, the, uh, the sort of this, um this drawing as i as we kind of look at this i i i grew up in the middle of the redwood so you, like I, I shared earlier you know you and i have that yeah. in common um uh, of being at the bottom of four miles of dirt road uh yeah. in in the middle of of the redwood forest and um the last house on the road the nearest neighbor was actually my dad's ex-wife <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow she she lived half a mile up the road and my yeah. my my brother uh, would sort of spend time with mom and then time with us and so yeah. then the next neighbor was you know yet another half mile so um so we were pretty isolated and um so i would spend a lot of time listening to uh music headphones on you know listening to lps and just drawing and i i yeah. always drew as a kid I, I read a lot and i drew a lot um 
I I also the the house that I grew up in was a was a little um, one bedroom house. Uh, it it was part of a um, <laughs> you know at the bottom of this road. It was part of it was on the other side of the gate to something called the Native Sons of the Golden West. They they're an organization in California that have this that's some kind of club, and they have they had a lodge and and it was pretty much a blue collar organization. So tradespeople who would who had built these little houses out in the middle of the redwoods um yeah. and they would come up on the weekends and stay there and you know they would get together in the summer months um at their lodge we had one of these little houses that was it was very uh minimal <laughs> as yeah. a home um and there were four kids and so my mom and dad slept on the uh, enclosed porch um uh two of us slept uh in a bed in the bedroom and two of us slept in a camper on the driveway right yeah um the so you know lots of drawing lots of listening to music um the the tv was connected to this um uh, to this uh rotor <laughs> yeah. and an antenna that sat at the top of a redwood tree so my dad climbed to the top of a tree lopped off the top of the tree put the aerial up there and then ran the you know and, and, and a rotor on it and then we had the control that would sit in and it meant that we could there were about three channels that we could you know uh, that we could actually view if, yeah. if you if you turn this thing and had it rotate to a specific direction so this so i always i always had this um this uh, my dad was an engineer at stanford university uh he worked at the hansen labs and um he was you know he was trained as a machinist and um and and apprenticed as a machinist and eventually became a, an engineer um and so our house was full of all these little uh, inventions. They're sort of solutions to the, <laughs> to where we lived in the minimal <laughs> yeah. house that we lived in. Uh, we heated the house with a wood stove. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad would um, nick a 55 gallon drum of waste alcohol from the lab. It, it was it was left over from a process, and he got permission from the, from yeah. this lab to just like take the 55 gallon drum. So we actually heated our house with waste alcohol that and, wow. you know, there's a there's a copper pipe running into the stove and he had machined a valve a, a burner and we had you had a valve and you just throw it a match into the burner and that actually that actually heated the house so i had this like um this kind of hacking uh yeah. sensibility uh for, yeah. I, you, know, you didn't call it hacking at that point that was dad you know yeah just solving the problem uh, but he solved it by making things um, the other, the uh, you know, looking at this drawing, the other uh, sort of hack there was, that, as I mentioned, there were four of us kids, um, and we uh, we we lived in the you know in the confines of this little house. Um, at one point, my cousin came from Denmark to live with us for a year, and uh, you know we didn't have anywhere to put him <laughs> because mm -hmm. all the available space was taken. But it just so happened my dad had finished building this little A-frame chicken house uh, across the road from our from our house, um, and and it was you know really my dad was a it wasn't is even at eighty nine a, a very good engineer. Um, and he had designed this very sound little eight foot by twelve foot structure, um, and built it, you know, out of two by fours and plywood, uh, and and um, you know, roofed it. And uh, but the chickens hadn't moved in yet. It was a clean chicken coop, yeah. <laughs> unoccupied chicken coop. So, uh, so Ola, my cousin from Denmark, 
got to move into the chicken coop. Yeah. But before he did, we we carpeted it and we put insulation in and paneling in the a window. Um, as as he ended his year abroad living with us, my dad thought, well, you know, that worked out pretty well. Prototype, yeah. you know, built it, prototyped it, we tested mm -hmm. it, tested it on the cousin. <laughs> uh, and he's like, how can I get these other three kids out of the house? Um, so we built three more of these. And, yeah. and all of these projects uh, always involved us. It wasn't my dad working in the garage. It was, you know, we were seen as labor. <laughs> so yeah. like we were going to be involved. We we're going to be involved yep. in the, you know, casting the foundation, the piers for these things, uh, doing the prefab, doing the assembly, doing the construction. So I, so, you know, I, I grew up in this world where any problem could be sort of solved um yeah. but with, with a little imagination a little resourcefulness yeah um and that was uh you know that that was a um sort of very foundational for me so I, you sort of think about you know these these moments um my mom was the very compassionate human you know i think <laughs> that where, where that stuff that that sort of need to stay connected to, to human beings comes from um, yeah. My dad was the the sort of practical problem solver who was always looking for, you know, always tinkering. Even even that enclosed porch that they slept on, they had a they had a raised bed. He made this four foot this bed that was four foot high so that they could lie in bed, and then look out the back windows. And he yeah. and he climbed those redwoods and he'd clear cut the branches so that when they lie when they were lying in bed, they could see the uh, Pacific coast. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> And wow. they could see the sunset. Yeah. And then he had a little TV that was at the head of the bed. And so to be able to watch that when you're lying in bed, he had a little mirror like hanging from, this, <laughs> you know, so everything, <laughs> everything was hacked. Um, so we are, each of these rooms had a phone in it. There's a little switchboard that my dad had made in the uh, house. So in the morning he would wake us up by calling us. He would just like rotate through. We had one <laughs> phone line. If we wanted to make a phone call in the house, he would set the timer for three minutes when, it got to three minutes, he would hang up on you. But you could go talk, you could go to the switchboard and switch it to your room and talk for hours. He didn't care. He just didn't want to hear us because there were four yeah. kids. Like he didn't want it in this tiny house. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we were, so we were constantly um, witnessing this sort of improv hack prototype, but a very methodical, you know, yeah. uh, engineered approach to it. So uh, super influential in terms of where I, learned about problem solving and and a systems-based approach yeah and 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 really i think uh, this idea of rapid ingenuity making use of existing resources and combining them and doing new things with them yeah oh man there's so much here and i'm so glad <laughs> you did this exercise because uh i think what you came up with is is just brilliant and full of insight um one of the first things that stands out to me well it like is like i i relate to a lot of this having grown up in the redwoods there's a yeah. real sense of um well there's there's kind of a lawlessness to it you know yeah. especially <laughs> there's a reason why people live out there yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. there's yeah. it's it's wild country. There's not a ton of like, you know, permit enforcement going on. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, out, outside of like major construction projects, because my dad owns a, a construction company in uh, in Santa Cruz County. So, mm -hmm. um, he, you know, he's he's a, a home builder. So he's also right. has that engineering mindset. So I grew up in the same way in a place where things were just always growing. Like yep. you were just always adapting and building. And, and there was this sense that as we, as our needs kind of 
develop because as as human beings are we're constantly like continuing to discover new types of value that we could be gaining from our environment um we just we build on and we you know we tear things down and we rebuild new things uh when when the old things stop stop being important um and so there was never this sense you know i'm realizing from my own experience i have never had the sense that there's just a perfect thing that you build and then you never need anything else (laughs) right i it's just it's always a work in progress um and it's one of the reasons that i um i i love I always kind of insist on getting our own place and our own property whenever we uh, are a place like in Hawaii, it's not an option for us, but uh, in Maryland, we, we, we ended up living an hour away from where I was working because Mm. I love having a yard and a place to, you know, we, we built a chicken coop and I'll tell you, chicken coops aren't that different from houses. They're (laughs) they're largely the same. Um, So uh, yeah, I love that like constant ability to constantly experiment, and yeah. there's always something to be to be molding, and and uh, there's always new experiences to be shaping uh, with your hands. Um, so just a ton of stuff here, and and on a related note, the idea of creative confidence, which is a mm-hmm. a big one. Uh, you know, there's that book by one of the founders of uh, the D School and IDEO, I believe. Yep. Yep. Um, Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, the the two Kellys, I believe. One of Tom, Tom or yeah, Tom or the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I recommend that book to a lot of people, and yeah. also one of the things I love about orbiting the giant hairball um, mm-hmm. is he he talks a lot about the creative confidence that we lose, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, or that a lot of people lose as children. Yeah. Um, you know, moving. I, from I can't space. read that passage without crying. In, uh, in yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I re- yeah. I read it out loud to groups a lot, and I can't. Mm-hmm. I, like, I have to stop and catch my breath uh, because yeah. I feel it so painfully. Like, I see how the, how we have systematically um, yeah. discouraged people from uh, being creative, from expressing yeah. that side of them, and how how our you know, whole whole education and workplace uh does that to people and, yeah, and, the, and it's, pa- it's painful to see that you know I think. Yeah. yeah and i think one of the most powerful things about that is when you take it from a this is how we behave in our home and our you know in our environment that we make yeah. for us when you take that mindset and you move it into but what if our workplace was like that right it uh <laughs> it is transformative it is you yeah. know it that changes the whole game. Like, no, what if we don't have to be miserable at work? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, you got, you, you just hit on really the, um, sort of, for me, the core of, of how I ended up where I am. So this is the sort of starting place um, with the, the, in this drawing. Um, the, uh, I, I'll jump to the end and then I'll talk a little bit about the middle, which is, um, uh, at a point, so I, I, I went to art school. I went to art school to be um, an illustrator because I really mm-hmm. love to draw. I love to paint, um, and uh, I, I, <laughs> one of the great things about going to uh, an art school where your, where your professors are actually professionals practicing the thing they're teaching you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's a kind of trade school, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know is is that you also learn what you don't want to be so um i I say illustrators are fine artists who are who are too like 
risk averse to actually be fine artists, right? So <laughs> they love expressing themselves. They love working in this medium, but they also want to make a living. And so yeah. I got to be an illustrator. Almost to a person, my illustration uh, faculty members were like unhappy and depressed. And part mm -hmm. of that was because this thing that had really been gratifying to them in terms of this self-expression was being um, dictated to them how they were going to do it, you know, what the yeah. parameters were, what was reje rejected, what was accepted. And and they were they were forced in this place. So I, I, I actually switched into design because I felt like design allowed me to um, to both be creative, but also do it in a slightly more rational way. It was like there's yeah. there's so there's some kind of rule sets like when it comes to human factors and things like that, where you can you can apply those and you can kind of reason your way to solutions and you can bring people along with it's not it's not as subjective in theory it's not as subjective in reality a lot of design ends up being really subjective too yeah um but then um i i quickly evolved from a designer who worked at the drafting table mm -hmm. <laughs> um another artifact from another era um it, to to somebody who was using design for strategy making purposes it was like let's think through how to solve this problem let's use this let's use the creative elements of design let's use yeah. those principles of design to solve these other kind of non-visual or non-traditional design problems yeah. and i and, and so i was really intrigued by that but what when we started in in what partly motivated me to start future which became solve next was what happened when I started working with people, uh, applying some of these uh, approaches to, with people and teaching people how to use them who don't see themselves as creative, those people who've mm -hmm. been told, you know, by society that either they're not good enough, they're not creative enough, or that's just like weirdos do that. Yeah. Like that's just like, that's, those are you know, the freaks and geeks do the creative stuff and you're not normal if you do that. So people try to conform to what's normal, which means yeah. I can't tell you that I'm an artist, right? You know, from the orbiting the giant hairball where people yeah. are no longer raising their hands saying, kids are no longer saying, I'm an artist, I'm an artist. So, yeah. so what was really gratifying was like what you could see, you could see the profound effect it would have on people when you unlocked their ability to be creative. When yeah. you unlock their ability to solve problems in ways that they th that felt kind of weird and maybe unusual for them, but then the, then they saw the effect of it and what they could actually do, and it's like that's super powerful. So it to me it was less interesting to get the problem and solve it myself as than it was to help other people help a lot more people try to solve the problem with these techniques, with these approaches. And, yeah. this, and to think about the, if, if you're motivated at all by making a difference in the world, like what's mm -hmm. the difference that you can make if you train a thousand people how to do something versus if you try to do that thing yourself? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the barriers that you're, like a lot of times, you know, in my experience, um, there's a lot of people who are just waiting for permission. Right. Um, they're, Absolutely. They're not like, it doesn't take a great feat yeah. to get them to suddenly become self-expressive. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, like what, what you do with that can become a really challenging and why facilitation requires some, like a lot of skill and a lot of practice mm -hmm. and a lot of different techniques. Um, because what you do with that then be, you know, can be a real thorny issue that requires planning and practice and, and iteration. But yeah. just that initial, there's a, there's for for just an enormous number of people there's like a dam waiting to to be burst that doesn't take that much 
Um, it, it doesn't take that much. It, a lot of times it just takes making people feel safe and then giving them permission. Yeah. Um, and then there's, there's all this stuff that they have not felt like they're allowed to express up until now. Um, and that can be a hugely, uh, powerful and, and gratifying ex experience for, for people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the, um, so there's, so giving people permission, uh, yeah, one of the, one of the, the drills that we run, you know, the big yes, uh, this is sort of um, uh, Djibouti, which which mm -hmm. uh, you, you've you've done, you know, uh, anchored in the in the practice, the imp improv practice of yes and, like yeah. yes and is such a simple thing, but that's a form of giving permission, right? That says yeah. rather than no because or or yes but or shutting people down, yes and sort of says okay, we're going to give each other permission as a team, as a group, as a, as a community, we're gonna give each other permission to build on each other. And we're gonna actually have an obligation. We're gonna, we're gonna enter into this contract where part of our, our, our responsibility, just like it is mm -hmm. in improv, is to make our cast members look better, right? Yeah. Like our job yeah. is, is we've gotta, I've gotta, when I make a contribution, it's to make you look good, not to make me look good. Yeah. Um, and suddenly that that just changes that um, sort of social dynamic and 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 creates that kind of permission. And so we see all the time. It's a simple it's a simple exercise. It's a simple principle, mm -hmm. but but it really is transformative for people to just like go, oh wow, if I just like can get out of this habit of yes butting people, yeah, you know, and get into this habit of of yes and. Um, one of the other things that I think that that helps people feel comfortable. And, and this is maybe that middle part where I talked about, I showed you the drawings from the early stage of my career and then talked about this sort of this, uh, you know, moment or realization that I had of, well, rather than being the designer working at the board, if I actually sort of change the context of the, of the design problem and, and, and equip and enable other people, yeah. I, I, I can I, I can have a lot more impact. I can actually make a bigger difference. Um, there is this other this other piece, which is this, this sort of um, discovery of the importance of simple mental models or frameworks. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of my evolution, you sort of see this background of where I came from in this 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 hacking culture, this creative culture, this environment like you talk about, where you know the, in the redwoods where kind of anything goes. Yeah. We lived down the road from a commune where you know everybody built their own house right out yeah. of whatever was around, <laughs> and the the you know the the way that they fed themselves and took every, you know, there's all these, it was countercultural, yeah. right? And so yeah. you had this sort of example of counterculture and some really amazing people doing great things. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, but I also um, sort of discovered that the, the, the importance, and this was in the phase of my career where I started doing user interface design and where I was, where I st started really for the first time working with multidisciplinary teams. So. To, traditionally in the communication design world, you're dealing with other communicators and communications professionals. And, you know, you have your client, but it's a fairly insular sort of community of people doing that work. Um, yeah. Within user interface design, whether it's for a hardware product or software product, you act, if you're on a good team, you're dealing with a software engineer or hardware engineer, you're dealing with cognitive psychologists, you're dealing with, yeah. um, you know, a product manager of some sort, you're, you're, you're hopefully dealing with somebody who understands user testing and research. And so you've got this mix of skills and perspectives and, and ways of looking at the problem. And, um, 
having a shared mental model, having a shared cognitive model that would say, okay, how are we going to organize our thinking and our action around this yeah. thing that we're trying to do was really useful. So I worked for a guy named Aaron Marcus um, at a firm called Aaron Marcus and Associates. And he was a very early, um, he's a pioneer of graphical user interface design. And, hmm. and, he, and he had a very clear framework that we used to engage in talking to people about user interface design from what is the overarching metaphor, like yeah. what is the cognitive model that organizes the functionality and the tasks and the roles, what's the navigation schema, and then yeah. what, what, what are the appearance characteristics. And so you kind of work through this structure. And I found, wow. It, it's so easy to sit down and work with a team when you have this simple framework, whether it's absolutely right or absolutely wrong, isn't what matters. It's that yeah. we've got this thing that we're working against. So, yeah. so we, I started doing work, you know, these little, these little drawings are just like simple, simple ways of helping people think about, um, about things. So Tom Peters in one of his books, um, writes about the, um, <laughs> the importance of, of uh, sort of the expectations that you create versus how you deliver against those expectations. So I, I sort of borrowed mm -hmm. that and, and, and use this equation when ha helping my clients in the past working on, on brand and mm -hmm. say, so simple definition for, everybody has different definitions of what brand is. And so I'd say, look, yeah. it's easy. Brand is how you're understood in the minds of the people who matter most to your success. So yeah. like, don't worry about the whole world. Think about the people who are going to be important to your success, how you're understood by them is, is, is that's what your brand is. Yeah. And and so so you have some control over that, but it's in somebody else's head. Yeah. Right? So that's a complex system. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but think about the things that influence how you're understood. One are the expectations you create. That's traditionally where people think about brand. Right? That's marketing and sales and all these yeah. things. Right. The the logo, the color, the type, the, you know, w w the, the, the elements of it. I'm going to I'm going to create some expectations then. The D is how we deliver against those expectations, right? Yeah. So what really shapes understanding is not just the expectation, but whether you live up to that expectation or not. So yeah. if you tell, you know, if you tell your wife, don't worry, I'll take the trash out mm -hmm. and, and, and you do it reliably, it's like, well, Daniel's a reliable guy. Yeah. If, if you say, I'll take the trash out and you don't do it, then it's like mm -hmm. Daniel's a flaky guy. Yeah, those are the, the the understanding is you set an expectation, and then how did you actually deliver against that? And yeah. and that shapes the understanding. And it turns out that's true in all human relationships. Like you know, we 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 have expectations of each other. That's that gives and gets things. <laughs> what am yeah. I going to get? What am I going to get? And yeah. and then how we deliver against it that makes us decide whether or not you know what what's our opinion of this person. Our opinion is how we understand somebody. Um, yeah. So, so this simple little device for people and thinking about, oh, there's this simple framework that we could actually organize all of our work against. Who in the organization is expectation setting? Who's delivery? Who's responsible for delivering? Mm -hmm. And are we keeping those things in sync, right? Yeah. Um, Larry Ellison famously sets expectations for you know, Oracle by doing vision selling. And so the question is, can the rest of the organization deliver what mm -hmm. he's selling? Yeah. Can they manage that gap between the vision that he's selling and what they can actually deliver. And when that gap gets too wide, then they lose credibility, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you can see how that plays out. So that device, the other, the little drawing with the flip top head was just thinking about, again, this is, this is all from brand work that I, I used to do. 
is thinking about um, if you want to think about how you're interested, think about it that there's uh, we we all have you know, like we flip our head open, we got little file file tabs in there, mm -hmm. right? And so I've got like the people that I can count on, the people I yeah. don't trust, the people who are <laughs> brilliant, the people who are super creative, the people who are a pain in my ass, right? Yeah. So I've got all these file folders. And and the question is like, which file folder are you trying to occupy? Are you trying to create a new file folder or are you just going yeah. in the miscellaneous folder? <laughs> like, you know, so just think about it. Like everybody's got these file folders in your head, in their head. What, what are you trying to build? Or which one are you trying to create? Uh, another yeah. like this little useful way for people to think about it. Oh, we're creating a file tab right now. Have we gone in the wrong folder? Have we gone in the right folder? Right? Yeah. So I've been working uh, on some sort of problem solving within an organization I'm in right now. And, and one of the, one of the uh, canvases that I've found really useful comes from systems thinking it's uh it's the, it's the uh, iceberg model mm -hmm. and the iceberg model is, is very simple. It starts with what's, what's the visible part of the, of yep. the iceberg. It's, it's, it's the, the things we can see people do. It's the be behaviors right. and practices. Well, beneath that are patterns of behavior. Like mm -hmm. those have formed into some kind of pattern. And then beneath that are structures that result as a result of the patterns of mm. behavior, mm. right? They're also yeah. beneath that are structures that we intentionally build. And then beneath that at the very bottom are mental models. So there's this relationship with there's always like this the as the iceberg grows or shrinks or or changes the what's happening on the lowest level affects every other level it's yep. like our mental models cause us to create structures they also mental models cause us to have behaviors that create unintentional structures right right so uh <laughs> that's just like something that i was thinking of is is this idea of what's in our heads like as mm -hmm. individuals and and how does that relate to what we're trying to do here? Because yeah. if we're not addressing the fact that we all have mental models uh, and and the uh, and the you know the differences the the problems that arise when we have yep. differences in our mental models, yes, we haven't intentionally like hey everybody here's a reminder here are our values for example this is a, right. a simplest example yeah you know getting everybody aligned to a single set of values is. Uh, something that a lot of organizations don't do. Right. Um, and as a result, it's just, oh, we don't have values. We just, we have the systems and, uh, and, and that's it. And then we right. all have our own individual values. That doesn't work right. at all. It, no. You know. Yeah. Or they have, worse, they have stated values. Uh, yeah. And they have lived lived values, and the lived values are very different than the stated values. So, I, yeah. you know, I, I, so I would, I would, I would maybe, um, uh, reframe a little bit what you said is like you we, we we don't we've got systems we don't have values we have systems and we all have our individual values well there's some there's some emergent set of values that actually are lived in the organization yeah they might not have been named or articulated yeah but but they are i'll give you an example we i um i worked for a company that put itself up for sale and we were actually got the the good good thing was it was a financial services company the good thing was we got to sort of we got to pick the buyer mm -hmm. um we were owned by Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo and Nico Securities, and we got to pick the buyer. One of the companies had a um, uh, a tradition of the uh, people who executives who worked there would leave the shoe of a sexual con conquest on their desk. Mm. Okay, mm. as a kind of trophy. 
Hmm. Now, so you could say there nowhere did somebody write down that as, write a value down of what that value was, but yeah. that 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 reflected the value of that or a value Absolutely, in that organization, yeah. right? Um, and and it actually was a signal as a as somebody selling an organization that we don't want to be part of that culture, right? Yeah. Because we learned about that. Um, yeah. Somebody thought it was funny, right, about mm -hmm. their culture. It's like, yeah, okay, that's a bad fit for us. So yeah. those so those values are not always explicitly articulated, but they exist, yeah. right? And they yeah. haven't been named yet. <laughs> so yeah, and that's a, that's an important thing. Yeah, but your but I mean, your point is well taken, which is we've got our individual values, we've got these either explicit or in, in, implicit values, yeah. and we're and and we we don't have any opportunity to align. So. So the reason I, I'll stop sharing the picture, uh, the, the reason I showed these, uh, and th this is another one around, around just how to organize our thinking and action around brand and how we're going to build it. You know, why do we exist? Yeah. What do we do? How do we do it? Um, and there are these different sort of points of, 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 of touch points, actually, that actually, that, that shaped, um, how we understood the, the, the reason I bring it up is is this sort of simple this other discovery, which was the power of a simple framework to mm -hmm. organize how we think and how we act, and and I'd add maybe to that sort of how we converse, how we exchange or dialogue around something, which is, I think is part of yeah. the action. So it's just like how am I thinking about this thing, and what are we going to do, and how do we talk about it? Values are a really good example of it. I mean, you you can even see this in the in our cur current political climate. If you just look at the, um, you know. The, there are there are few organizations that have more clearly stated and more clearly lived values than the branches of the military. Yeah. Right. And and you can see in those uh, military officers uh, the how the their experience in the political realm has has really graded against their values and how they and how they've had to live their you know they've continued to live their military values because in a political context which appears to be absent of them yeah you know they they can't say oh i have these values and now i've got this other value set that i'm going to replace it with or mm -hmm. that will be you know will will supersede it it's I'm I'm living these values. This is who I am. I'm doing it in this other context, yeah. and so it's been really interesting to sort of listen to, uh, you know, some of these generals and other uh, uh, other leaders who who come come from cultures that are so um, true, right? In terms yeah. of the way that they live their values, uh, and just into into kind of you know witness <laughs> and hear from them uh, what their experience has been like coming out the other side of it uh and yeah. and, and how in a sense traumatic that is i think um yeah. to sort of realize that hey there's this whole part of the world that's that's <laughs> that's living a whole bunch of unstated values that are actually quite um yeah. contradictory to uh, what governs us kind of culturally i wrote a piece um i think the beginning of this year about the air force core values mm -hmm. um which i'm kind of reminded of because there's this one that's always irked me uh it's this uh service before self um and the you know you talk about explicit versus implicit values um my experience of that was very much at odds with how people were describing it. People mm -hmm. were like, oh no, that doesn't mean we don't, you know, we don't also take people's needs as individuals into account or we don't take care of people. It, it you know, that's not something 
uh, that we enforce on others because, you know, it's, it, I like to say selflessness is a great value to have as an individual, but a criminal one to impose on other people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, right. It, right. It, it means something <laughs> yeah. completely different when right. you're the enforcer of, right. a, of a value like that. Yeah. And that's what I saw it kind of being wielded as, which transforms it. It's mm-hmm. not, it's no longer like this is our shared value it takes on this new meaning which is yeah. the explicit doesn't match the implicit right and uh and yeah it gets I, perverted in that situation it's a really good it's a really i i i remember um that posting and i i think it was a really valuable insight to say there are there are certain values that you can't impose on others yeah uh and, and that and and when you when you do your your um you are actually perverting the value in a way that's yeah. actually, that's, that's really dangerous. Um, yeah. You know, and, and <laughs> there, there are some things that we have to choose for ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel the same way about stoicism, it, you know, like stoic, <laughs> like having stoic values is great. You know, like I, I, I have internalized, I grew up in a deeply religious, you know, household where I said, mm-hmm. you know, asceticism was, was very, you know, like suffering can bring you, a lot of it can bring a lot of good to you it can build mm. character it can uh having gone through difficult experiences can be a, a, a hugely beneficial for you psychologically yeah. and growth but that doesn't mean you should <laughs> you should be torturing people for their benefit for their benefit. That's, yeah <laughs> that's crazy yeah. uh so that's that's sort of an interesting um yeah. yeah the explicit implicit values thing and being intentional about our values but um, I think on a larger scale and, and how this, how this fits in with organizational design, um, how the values that we state and whether they match, um, uh, with who, who we are and who we want to be and right. whether that aligns with the value that we're trying to bring into the world. Um, one thing that I really see missing from a lot of those is, you know, we talked like I talked about the, you know, early on, I talked about, uh, storing animals for slaughter. Yep. The downstream of what you're doing and it, you know, and in this case, upstream of the values to create something are the values to take care of the people within the organization, right? Uh, which, which is a really important piece that, um, I've been having a lot of conversations lately where they're like, Oh, can you bring facilitators in to help us solve this problem? And the first question that, I, you know, I, I'm having conversations and they're like, yeah, we just want to create a process. Mm-hmm. And my first question, you know, you talked about leadership building and sneaking that in there. My first question is, is always like, I, I don't know if, if you're at a stage where you could have a process because you're not who you need to be to, in, to create and enforce and sustain that process. Right. Uh, which, and, and have you answered your why, right? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> but you get back to purpose, right? Or our yeah. the ultimate why is our purpose. Like what is yeah. our, and, and I don't mean, you know, we're here to process X number of transactions. It's like, okay, well, why does that, you know, it's the old five whys, right? Why does, why does processing yeah. transactions matter? Like when you get down to that sort of fundamental, this is why we do this, right? Because, yeah. um, when we, you know, when we process transactions efficiently and honestly and with integrity, it improves the quality of these lives, you know, in these ways. It's like, oh, so that's the, the sort of t- transformative purpose that you have in the world. Yeah. Now, now you get clear about your why. Now let's talk about, we can start to talk about process in terms of how you actually, um, 
you know, what are the systems you can put in place and, 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 you know, what's the value you want to create with that purpose? Where are yeah. the opportunities to do that? And then what's the process for making that happen? Um, the, you know, again, the sort of simple, simple models when, when I was introduced in the brand world, Hey, this is how you want to be understood. You know, uh, let's talk about how you want to be understood. You know, and let's think about the expectations you create, you want how you want to deliver again, deliver against that. The simple, the, the sort of simple set of questions like, who are you, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, what do you do? How do you do it? Why does that matter? Like these, these, yeah. these are the four questions you have to answer. Who are you? Know, who yeah. are you? You know, what do you do? How do you do it? Why does that matter? And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, who does it matter to? Um, and and yeah. like organizationally, you just need to be able to answer those. And yeah. and then once you can answer those, then you can talk about, you know, okay, so how do we start to shape those expectations and how do mm-hmm. we start to deliver that in a way that doesn't create these contradictions where um, we have, uh, you know, we, we, we said one thing selfless and then we, and then we did another, which was, yeah. um, which is exploitation yeah. <laughs> you know, of, of individuals by mm-hmm. asking them to deny themselves. <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Either yeah. that, you know, if that is the intent, then say it, like don't yeah. create the dissonance. Right. It's like, yeah. well, we actually, we are building an army of selfless people of, yeah. of, 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 you know, individualist people <laughs> well i've heard it i have heard it expressed that you know some people view that as the brand of the military you're trying mm-hmm. to you know some people view that as the brand of of uh basic training you're trying to strip mm-hmm. people of their identity yeah. Yeah. so that you can rebuild them as as war fighting machines i've always rejected that because i'm never going to be a cog in a machine i yeah. i view my value as as uh you know like um as john margalick expressed in a interview i did with him he a uh, chaos muppet he got uh <laughs> from, from an article by dahlia lithwick uh like, there's chaos muppets and there's order muppets i'm a chaos muppet I, which which You're means that, an animal or beaker yeah, or, yeah exactly yeah so yeah i and and i kind of i i think we all have you yep. know like a unique value to bring which comes very you know you described your origin story there yeah. as a as a design superhero and i uh we all have that and and that yeah. it, we all have very unique kind of formulas to draw on uh, yeah. and that that's a lot of what we're trying to do with with design is is you know take as full advantage of that as you know and use that to build good things as possible um, yeah and I, and i think that the um the important thing is you're talking to you know the ajitari uh, am i saying it right ajitari yeah ajitari Ajitari. Yeah. Um, as as we as we talk to that community, and anytime I talk to people who are um, who are learning uh, to be or improving on and building themselves as as facilitators, um, it is to bring themselves to that. Right? Is to find yeah. their own voice uh, in, yeah. in in terms of how they do that work. Um, it's not to try to emulate somebody else, but to mm-hmm. to 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 like there are there are lots of exercises and and drills that you know that we'll, we'll all we'll all use but when you can bring your when you can make a connection to a personal story just as you asked me to do with the drawing mm-hmm. when you can when you can have when you can speak to that with that kind of intimate connection and knowledge uh, we're going to do this thing and, and i'm going to bring some personal i'm going to connect to it in a personal way 
when you can bring your own style of how I engage with and orchestrate and you know the the interaction of people, when you can bring your own um, sort of your own values and what's important to you in terms of that that human exchange and interaction, when you bring that, then you become a really um, uh, uh, yeah, effective. Uh, 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 facilitator and you create really meaningful experiences for people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. I, you know, I've said some people I tend to, if I'm live in a room, I tend to be, um, I, I tend to be pretty loud. I tend to be pretty energetic. I like to, I like to put energy out and watch and get energy back. Yeah. But some people are, um, more soft-spoken, right? Some mm -hmm. people are quiet. Some people are more reflective in internal processors. Like Stephen Burke, who I mentioned, Stephen is like the sweetest, most lovely human being you'd ever meet. And yeah. I don't think he's probably ever raised his voice in his life, right? Yeah. He's just this soft-spoken Welshman who he's, he's like the, you know, he's like the, the, the leader whisperer. He'll come in and he'll just like quietly transform people. Um, yeah. and, and you could, I would never expect Steven to do what I do. And I would never, mm -hmm. and, and Steven would never expect me to just try to try to do what I would fail miserably at doing what mm -hmm. he does. Um, yeah. and, and so I just think it's really important for people as they're doing this kind of work, as they're learning these techniques, as they're building their tool kit out, also make sure that you bring yourself to it right yeah and and, and sort of yeah. say how 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 do i want to show up <laughs> yeah. uh and how do i bring you know everything that i the you know, this accumulated over my life journey to this work and yeah. and make it that much more meaningful for people yeah now that's such an important uh point like you know a lot of a lot of this just a you know agitari and my exploration of it really arose from my realization that it there was no there was no magic framework that you could just plug right. in anywhere right. there's there's a lot that goes on in the human interaction portions of that uh that takes you know it takes you up feeling the road beneath your beneath your motorcycle yep. it's it's uh, <laughs> you're navigating a bunch of people at the same time yeah. and yeah. and that takes a bunch of you know kind of nuance and and mm -hmm. the ability to to read people and, and interact, in a you know, in the way that works best for you and your personality. Yeah. Cause yeah. Yeah. And I love feeling, you know, I love being in, in uh, facilitated sessions with different people and realizing uh, that they do it completely different from me. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that, yeah, that works for you. You know, like you created the value you needed to in that session in a way that I definitely would not have. Um, and that's what we're trying to kind of empower in people with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's this one of the fun things yeah. about that's one of the fun things about teaching is you see, it's like, oh wow, I, uh, uh, that's a great story. I would have never yeah. done that. That well, that's uh, you know. So you're like always, it's it's fun to watch and it's fun to harvest and say, oh, I could use that. I could incorporate yeah. that. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this has been just such an incredible conversation. I wanted to thank you again for uh, for joining me. It's always such a joy to to spend time talking with you about this stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, just one last time, I'm going to encourage people to check out uh, Solve Notes. What you're doing with Solve Next, you're looking a lot at uh, innovation strategy these days, yeah. um, and that's super exciting work um, that I'm, you know, still still working to to tie you into people <laughs> in the Air Force. We'll we'll make it work. We'll <laughs> find a way. Point. We'll crack yeah, that nut. We will. Yeah, we yeah. will. Uh, you know, or I'll retire, and you know, in five years after after trying, and and we'll we'll say we gave it gave it the college try but yeah um 
Yeah, the, this has been fantastic. Is there anything you uh, you wanted to to kind of impart that we we didn't cover or we almost covered? No, I think it's great. I I I, um, I admire you uh, for doing this and for taking it on and and just constantly pushing and and you know making stuff. Uh, you know, trying things. I think that uh, the, these conversations are really important and mm-hmm. uh, and can be really fruitful. So um, thanks for doing it. I do want to see you uh, at some point pick that guitar up and play the theme song for the podcast. Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be <laughs> important. You know, you need to have a theme song. I know, you, know, so you don't yeah. want to impose any structural <laughs> thing on there, but I think that'll be important. Uh, yeah, you know, it'll be so. a new theme song every time. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely why not <laughs> um so no but i it, it's a joy to have the conversation with you and to um and to learn from you and to uh you know have you keep me curious too yeah well thank you so much greg i gotta okay. i gotta run off to lunch now uh, yeah you, you go sure, have lunch <laughs> yeah i'm sure we will talk again soon all right take care all right bye, bye. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We love ideas and feedback, so feel free to send your thoughts to hello at deaf.org. For more great content and to stay in the loop about community events and activities, follow us on social media and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Everyone plays a part in building the innovative national security culture we want to see. To find where you fit, just go to deaf.org slash join. That's def.org slash join.